Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, a special investigation. Many in media quickly claimed, without evidence, there were no anomalies in the 2020 presidential election. Why were they so quick to close such an important question in arguably the most irregular presidential election held in our time? And what really happened in 2020? I'm recording this podcast not long after the CNN town hall with presidential candidate Donald Trump, in which the host said something that just sort of set me off a bit in terms of journalism. When President Trump was talking about fraud that he says occurred in the 2020 election campaign, the host retorted, there were no fraudulent votes in Wisconsin, as if she knew, as if she somehow were omniscient and had access to how every vote in the state of Wisconsin was cast. Now, I wouldn't have a problem with a journalist saying something like, certain authorities say that there were no fraudulent votes cast in Wisconsin, or certain political figures say there were no fraudulent votes cast. They can't really know that either, but at least as a journalist, you're quoting somebody else's claim. But to take that a step further and to make a claim that you couldn't possibly know about as a reporter... It's really unjournalistic, but isn't that the story of today's media in so many cases? It used to be that we were taught in journalism school, you have to attribute the things that you're reporting that other people say that you don't know about firsthand. In fact, as reporters, there are very few things we know about a story that we have observed firsthand ourselves. For example, if somebody shoots somebody else and the police say they have a suspect in custody, You as the reporter, if you didn't see the shooting, can't say that somebody shot somebody else. And I would even go so far as to say, even if you think videotape of something shows something you think you see, you still have to be very careful because how often have we learned that the video is interpreted incorrectly or that there's more to the story? All of this has to be interpreted. For example, police say this person shot somebody else. You as the reporter can't say it as if you know. But again, too often today's journalists are being encouraged, not just allowed, but encouraged to insert their uninformed opinions in stories. And I don't think this is good for any of us in terms of media credibility, getting at the facts, public confidence in what's being reported, all of that. Well, I'm raising that unfounded comment by the host in the CNN town hall that there were no fraudulent votes cast in Wisconsin in 2020 because it directly relates to the subject at hand today. As a result of the 2020 election, I learned a few things. I learned that no journalist investigating or no politician or citizen challenging the fairness of a presidential election has access to the information they would need to prove their case. In 2020, the Trump side was being required by the courts in the aftermath of the election to somehow get and produce evidence in a matter of days that takes years to get and build when handled by prosecutors in court. And without being able to force people to give depositions, without the power to subpoena data and materials. So yeah, that's one of the big takeaways for me. 2020 aside, if there ever is fraud in an election, unless the powers in charge, who are often the guilty parties in such a scenario, unless they choose to pursue the alleged fraud and get to the bottom of it, there's pretty much nothing an individual or challenger can do. This is huge. 
The media's rush to declare the case closed in 2020 because the media were so stacked against Donald Trump and so wanted Joe Biden to be president. It defies common sense and journalistic procedures. Suddenly, there wasn't the slightest suspicion or inkling of curiosity among so many. It was as if they thought there wouldn't be powers in arguably the most unusual election of our time who'd be willing to do anything to have their candidate win. Of course there were. I followed a couple of the court challenges by Trump and his supporters early on, and it struck me in one court proceeding when a Trump-allied lawyer was pleading with a judge for just a few more days to produce names of people who could testify or something, and this attorney was trying to tell the judge, this is information that normally takes months, if not years, to build. They were being required to produce it in a matter of something like 48 hours, without any power to make anyone answer their questions or provide the information they would need. Truly outrageous and frightening, I think, from the standpoint of public confidence. In fact, polls have consistently showed that even before 2020, a majority of the public doesn't have faith in the integrity of our elections here in the U.S. We have slowly become like the nations we've criticized over the decades. And of course, Trump added a new wrinkle, Normally, you would think that at least one side would be pushing for an investigation, even if the other side didn't want one. But many establishment Republicans are not on Trump's side and just as happy to see him fail. And it's worth noting here that it wasn't just the media declaring no fraud before they investigated or could possibly have a chance to know. There was the weird case of Trump's own Attorney General, Bill Barr, actually calling the Associated Press, according to my sourcing, He reached out to them and wanted to be interviewed right after the election, and it was in that interview that Bill Barr declared there wasn't any fraud, more or less. That was on June 28, 2020. Here's how the AP story read. Disputing President Donald Trump's persistent, baseless claims, Attorney General William Barr declared Tuesday, the U.S. Justice Department has uncovered no evidence of widespread voter fraud that could change the outcome of the 2020 election. Well, in fact, Bill Barr couldn't have known. There had been no widespread investigation. AP couldn't have known that Trump's claims were baseless. It didn't make sense to me to have this reported this way and have Bill Barr saying these things, at least from a journalism and factual standpoint. And you may recall how this proclamation of no fraud changed over those days in the first couple of weeks after the election. Initially, the media and many said there was no fraud. And then when some fraud was uncovered, they said, well, there was no widespread voter fraud. And then when there was arguably some widespread voter fraud that could have taken place, they changed it to there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud that could have changed the outcome of the 2020 election. They kept modifying the phraseology as needed to try to put the issue to rest. It seemed to me to be an effort to Make the topic untouchable for the future, that nobody dare claim there could have been irregularities or fraud in 2020, or they would be banished to social media oblivion, lampooned, discredited. After all, they would say in the media, it's been established that this was the cleanest election ever in history, right? Well, I'm no exception to the notion that no single citizen or journalist has access to the information they would need or the power to get the information and interviews and data to know for sure what did or didn't happen in the 2020 presidential election. So I set out on a different mission. 
And maybe I'm uniquely one of the few so-called mainstream journalists who would do such a thing because many journalists won't go down the normal journalistic path because it could be interpreted, they are afraid, as something that could benefit or favor Donald Trump. I, on the other hand, don't mind whichever way the chips may fall. So I decided that one thing I could do was find what has come out in the record since 2020 to see if there were any hints of problems that would indicate there could be much more that we never found out about we may never know. At least I could examine the subset of what was in the record. I shouldn't be shocked by what I found because it turns out every election has its issues and problems and fraud, and 2020 did too. But I thought it was important to underscore that 2020 had issues despite the illogical and unfounded claims to the contrary. So for my cover story this week on Full Measure, Sunday, May 14th, of all the cases I looked at, I chose a selection to highlight and talk about. This story disproves the claims that you've heard and continue to hear. Now, I didn't set out to prove the probes could have been a game changer. Saying that that was the bar that you'd have to prove that the results would have changed the outcome of the whole presidential election, that's just a strategy that people are using because, as I said, without access to the information one would need to see all of this, there's no way for anybody to know whether there were enough irregularities or even fraud to change the election results. And so the basic strategy was to say that because nobody has access and nobody could really look, that there was no evidence and therefore no problem. A huge logical fallacy. Another interesting thing I found in my investigation that I guess I kind of knew, but it struck me as I was doing my reporting, there's no independent body looking for voter and election anomalies and fraud. And even when they are found by accident or through whistleblowers or perhaps local prosecutions, and we can only logically assume that only a small subset are actually identified, well, there's no way to rectify the election impacted, if impacted. And the punishment given to those who are found guilty tends to be remarkably light. And I also learned that because Republicans are often no better than Democrats at pursuing alleged fraud, in part because they're benefiting from the system too in various ways, even if it's Democrats who are cheating, it makes it even more difficult to get to the bottom of things and makes it easier for people in media and politics who are putting out narratives to claim that there's no fraud. And I don't want to suggest that Republicans don't cheat too, Republicans and Democrats alike. I'm just saying that we the people really can't count on any independent body or even either political party to really be watching the integrity of our elections. And I think that's a huge takeaway from all of this. Today in this podcast, you're going to hear about 2020 voter fraud unearthed by two regular guys in the hotly contested state of Arizona when officials weren't looking, but they well knew there were decades of organized voter fraud in their town, and they set about to show it. But first, I'm going to highlight an interesting case that did not impact the presidential election in 2020, but here's why it's important. It stands as an example of how fraud can and was long committed with fake votes being added to machine counts in real time with crooked officials overseeing the machine counts and recounts, thus making it nearly impossible to catch the fraud. I mean, this is so obvious to me, but in 2020, when people were doing recounts and then certifying the machine counts, saying everything was fine, well, if you're asking 
crooked people who fix the vote to certify the count, you're really not going to get anywhere towards the truth. Assuming for the sake of argument there was cheating, well, asking the cheaters to recount or certify the vote doesn't really get you anywhere toward the truth. And this is not just theoretical or speculation. It's exactly what happened in the case I'm about to tell you about right after a short break. This revealing and instructive case in Philadelphia was prosecuted last year. It's a lesson in that the voting machines and recounts in an election are only as good and honest as those in charge. This case involves a corrupt former U.S. congressman named Michael Ozzie Myers, a Democrat, who pleaded guilty to leading a ring to fraudulently stuff ballot boxes for Democrats in five Pennsylvania elections leading up to 2020. So we're talking about various elections from 2014 to 2018. One thing that should strike you off the top is that this is a locally powerful figure, a politician who knows his way around politics in a big city, again, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this went on, as far as they know, at least five elections over five years. According to prosecutors, Ozzie Myers bribed the judge of elections, someone named Dominic DeMauro, who oversaw the entire election process, and he's the one who attests to the accuracy of the machine results. Are you catching what I'm throwing out? I'm saying here that if you bribe the person in charge of the election process and the person in charge of attesting to the accuracy of the machine counts, well, then you've pretty much taken care of people uncovering fraud because in the recount, this person's going to say everything was fine. And then I guess the media declares there was no fraud. Well, this judge of elections, Dominic DeMauro, pled guilty in May of 2020 to illegally adding votes for certain candidates. So there is a way to do that, and it does happen. Another judge of elections named Marie Barron pleaded guilty in the case in October of 2021. She, this judge of elections, installed close associates to serve as members of the Board of Elections. And according to the U.S. attorney in the case who prosecuted it, Ozzie Myers, the corrupt former U.S. congressman, told Barron, the judge of elections, who to add votes for. And here's how the whole thing was set up, according to prosecutors. Almost every election day, Ozzie Myers, the former U.S. congressman, would transport Barron, the election judge, to the polling station. And during that drive to the polling station, Myers would advise the election judge, Barron, which candidates should be getting fraudulent votes. And during election day, Myers, Ozzie Myers, would confer with the election judge, Barron, on cell phone while she was at the polling station about the number of votes being cast for the preferred candidates. So here they are monitoring the vote count in real time and then determining, according to the complaint, how many legitimate votes were being cast and how many fake votes they needed to get the preferred candidates to win. Isn't that interesting? So in real time, they're able to add fake votes to the machine counts to make the preferred candidates win. Now, Barron, the election judge, and her accomplices from the Board of Elections, the people that she placed there, would then falsify the polling books. According to reports, Barron took pains, this is one quote I'm reading from a news article, took pains to ensure that the number of ballots cast on the machines was a reflection of the number of voters signed into the polling books 
and the list of voters. So it's sophisticated enough that they're coordinating and making sure that the number of voters is right, so it doesn't seem outrageous or wrong. They're coordinating how many votes to add for the right candidate, but to maintain it within the realm of credibility. And after the polls would close on election day, Barron, the election judge, and her associates that she put on the Board of Elections would falsely certify the results. Did you hear about this case prosecuted last year? Don't you think that's a pretty important and significant case in a big city, implying that this kind of thing could be happening elsewhere if it was going on in Philadelphia for five years? I'm going to read from an article now from ABC 27, WHTM, that wrote a little bit more about how the scheme worked with Ozzie Myers. We talked about his scam with one election judge, but with another, DeMuro. Here's a quote. Officials say Myers admitted to bribing DeMuro to illegally add votes for certain candidates of their mutual political party in primary elections. Some of these candidates were individuals running for judicial office whose campaigns had hired Myers, and others were candidates for various federal, state, and local elective offices that Myers favored for a variety of reasons. Myers would solicit payments from his clients in the form of cash or checks as consulting fees and then use portions of these funds to bribe DeMuro and others to tamper with election results. After receiving payments ranging from between $300 to $5,000 per election from Myers, officials say DeMuro would add fraudulent votes on the voting machine, also known as ringing up votes. Hey, they even have a term for it bringing up votes for Myers' clients and preferred candidates, thereby diluting the value of ballots cast by actual voters. At Myers' direction, authorities say DeMuro would add these fraudulent votes to the totals during election day and then would later falsely certify that the voting machine results were accurate. Myers is also accused of directing DeMuro to lie to investigators about the circumstances of the bribes and the ballot-stuffing scheme. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that even when cases are uncovered, it seems to me from a neutral standpoint, the punishment for them is remarkably light at times. As for the ex-Congressman Ozzie Myers, convicted in that Philadelphia ring that changed votes and cheated in five elections, he got just two and a half years in prison, even though he was a repeat offender, by the way. He'd been kicked out of Congress back in 1980 and served time in prison in the bribery scandal known as Abscam. So he's a repeat bribist. Let me read you a summary of what Abscam was about, which you can read more about at fbi.gov, by the way. But the FBI writes, on February 2, 1980, the world learned of our high-level investigation into public corruption and organized crime, infamously codenamed Abscam. The unfolding details were riveting, says the FBI, Everything from mobsters hawking stolen paintings and fake securities in the Big Apple to politicians peddling influence in the nation's capital, there were high-ranking government officials caught on tape stuffing wads of bribe money in their pockets and saying things like, I've got larceny in my blood, and FBI agents posing as representatives of a fictitious Middle Eastern sheikh gathering evidence of these big league crimes. It all started in July 1978, the FBI says, when we set out to catch New York City underworld figures dealing in stolen art, we set up a bogus company in Long Island, Abdul Enterprises, thus the name Abdul Scam or Abscam, 
said to be owned by a wealthy Arab sheikh who wished to invest oil money in valuable artworks. Then, says the FBI, we recruited an informer who connected us with crooks willing to sell us stolen treasures. It worked. Within months, we'd recovered two paintings worth a combined $1 million. Through that operation, we were introduced to criminals who were dealing in fake stocks and bonds. Again, success. Our undercover work ended up halting the sale of nearly $600 million worth of fraudulent securities. From there, our investigation led us to southern New Jersey and on to Washington, D.C. Our criminal contacts led us to politicians in Camden who were willing to offer bribes to get our business a gambling license in Atlantic City. Then, when we expressed interest, says the FBI, in their suggestion to get the Sheikh asylum in the U.S., the fake Sheikh, these corrupt politicians arranged for us to meet some U.S. congressmen who could make it happen with private legislation for a price $50,000 up front and an extra $50,000 later when the dust settled, one senator, six congressmen, and more than a dozen other criminals and corrupt officials were arrested and found guilty. Ozzie Myers was one of those and again convicted of something else all these decades later, bribery in five elections in Philadelphia and sentenced to just about two years in prison for that. There is some famous undercover recordings from the FBI's Abscam investigation, and those recordings capture then-Representative Michael Ozzie Myers holding an envelope containing $50,000 that he just received from an undercover FBI agent in this scam. Now on to 2020 and a fraud case exposed in Arizona right after a short break. In this age of a highly controlled media landscape, it's never been more important to fight the heavy hand of censorship and support truly independent journalism. Go to CherylAckison.com and click the store tab for a great way to do that. There are all kinds of cool products. A lot of them make great gifts that feature catchphrases like, I tested positive for critical thinking and do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. Proceeds support independent journalism causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards for off-narrative, accurate reporting. Go to CherylAckeson.com and click the store tab. Now a pretty incredible case because it involves two Hispanic Republicans in San Luis, Arizona, who say they became aware of long-standing fraud going on over decades in San Luis, and officials really not wanting to do anything about it, sort of what I was speaking about earlier in this podcast. Neither Democrats nor Republicans, according to them, were interested in getting to the bottom of what they saw as pretty blatant organized voter fraud. So they did a simple thing that nobody in law enforcement or no election officials wanted to do or decided to do. They simply set up a camera outside some polling places and captured fraud going on in blatant daylight. The first voice you will hear in this interview is that of Gary Snyder. He actually recorded the video that you will hear him referring to, and that, by the way, you can see in my full measure cover story on Sunday. And then the other voice you will hear after Gary Snyder, they'll go back and forth, is that of David Lara, a small business owner. These two men, these two friends, worked together to uncover fraud that nobody else seemed to care about. Again, the first voice you'll hear is that of Gary Snyder. Uh, I first moved to San Luis, Arizona in 2015 with my uh, 
new wife and our house that we have in San Luis, Arizona. Um, played pro ball in Mexico while I was doing consulting. And when COVID hit, uh, everything stopped. There was no professional sports. So I stayed home with the family. I had an opportunity to see our community, which is almost an 80% Latino community, uh, being scared because of COVID. It's something new. And we rely on elected officials, but our elected officials weren't anywhere to see. They were worrying about themselves. It was the time that we had um, opportunities to get PPE and self-help, but they weren't there. So I started helping out the community because I always do a nonprofit help. I reach out to the community. And then I started checking school boards. From school boards, I went to city council. From city council, I went to mayoral. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm definitely going to do better because at the end of the day, I have the heart for my family, for our nation, our community, and I'm, you know, I wanted to be the leader for our community to get that done. So I decided to run for a write-in. I had no chance. I only had a month left, but I did it because a lot of people told me in this area, for you to run as a candidate and you weren't on the left or the right side of those democratic groups, that you will be intimidated, you'll be harassed, and even sometimes uh, scared out of your community if you had a business. So when I decided to run, I started going me against their establishment, two sides of the Democratic group. They hit me. They hit me with bad stuff. They didn't have nothing because, you know, I'm not a criminal. I have no past. I'm just a hardworking ex-professional baseball player that loves playing baseball, loves my family, loves my community, loves America. And I had an opportunity to hear about David Lada, the gentleman beside me, that uh most hated uh, a Republican in San Luis, Arizona, because he believes in honesty. And not honesty because he's a Republican, but he believes in the United States. And when I had a chance to meet him, he vetted me to make sure that I was actually honest and true, that what, that's what I wanted. It wasn't just for self-gain. So from there, that's how we were. We grew the opportunity to be as right now with the voter fraud and my campaign. And what did you run for? Uh, city Council. And you didn't no, it was, I only had a month as a write-in just, just to see if it's true as, a, as any candidate for any position that they will intimidate you, they will scare you, and they will definitely uh, degrade you. What is um, just a very brief thumbnail sketch of your story when you said you've been watching fraud for many years? Tell us where you live and what you've seen. I live in San Luis, Arizona. I moved to San Luis, Arizona in 1986. I'm originally from California, Southern California. 2000. Uh, my wife here ran for actually in a special election against Fuentes, the lady is now in jail. And she was a candidate, and I decided to, to help her. She was a lone candidate at that time. Uh, by helping her, I realized and I was able to see what was happening, and this is a small community. In 1986, there were 1,000 residents. By the year 2000, there was about 1,400, 1,500 max. So it's very small. Everybody knows everybody. And I was able to see how one person would claim to have five to ten ballots. I mean, you're supposed to vote one person, one vote, and now people are telling me they have five to ten ballots. That's what got my curiosity going. What's the kind of thing that people would say that made you think they had Well, five to what, ten what they would say was, uh, well, uh, I have five ballots, I have six, ten, and when I started to ask them, it was first their family members and their neighbors or friends. And I that's what really triggered me. That was the question, why, how? And the more I looked into it, I realized that what people found out, the people that were, had a little bit of knowledge, that ballots were tangible. They were, you could negotiate with them. And it was also very easy, and they were taking advantage of a 
mostly farm working community, Latino, very few spoke English, very few, and very easy to take advantage of. So it was very easy to tell somebody, uh, give me your ballot and I'll, I'll vote for you. So were people actually saying to you, I can get you five votes if yes. you do X, Y, or Z because they had more ballots? Yes, yes. And, and everything is, there's a string attached. So in other words, you can trade for a job, you can trade for a favor, you can trade for many things. And being a small community, if you have, for instance, a speeding ticket, you can get it fixed. So it depends on who you know is the favor that you can get. And this just grew. I mean, from something very small, it just got out of control. And, and this, it got to this point. Were you working in Republican or Democrat circles when at, your wife was running? No, at that time, um, I was what you call a soft Republican because I wasn't really involved. She's the one that really got, got me started. But my biggest surprise when I found this fraud in, in 2000, I went to the GOP establishment. And that was the biggest resistance. It was not the Democrats. The so you thought you found fraud on the part of Democrats. Correct. But you think the Republicans didn't want to hear about it. What I found out was the establishment Republicans were actually financing or in some way benefiting. In other words, you have contracts, building contracts, correct? Now, it depends on who's in a position of power and who gives out those contracts, who awards them. And I realized that small communities, and the contractors were Republican, you know, very few contractors. So they didn't want to make any waves. And if you are going to do business in a small community, you get in touch with a warlord. That's what I call them, warlord, because they're holding our communities hostage. Is it your belief or allegation, I'll ask each of you the same question, that there's been long-term voter fraud in this small community for a very long time? Since I've been there in 2015, I previously lived in Yuma, but the city of Yuma since 2009, and we heard about South County politics. So when we say South County, it's at the border, the official border crossing, that what is conducted in Yuma, more of a re Republican majority, is done this way, but in San Luis, the politics is done a different way. So that means they go against what the law is, they do their own politics. So when I moved down there in 2015, I saw it, but I was still playing baseball, so I wasn't really entrenched. But once the COVID hit, that's when I started getting very, very interested, seeing everything with my own eyes. My own family members were telling me this. My own neighbors were telling me this. You know what? They're like, they give me props. You know, it's, it's going to be tough. They said, you know, I know you're strong, but this is what you're going to know. This is what's going to happen. And literally down to the T, it's what happened. So I do believe voter fraud has been there for years and years and years. I've seen it. You know, when you check the numbers, you gauge the numbers, I mean, you have people voting at a high rate that you're like, how is this possible when a lot of these people don't even live here? For example, our community is a little bit different. When we have a winter, they're in here in the farming. During the spring and summer, they're in California. So how do you vote in a primary if they're all in California, but yet their vote's already in? You know, those are stuff like that that people don't ask that question. Gary, would you say this is an open secret that's been known about and tolerated in the community for a long time? Yes, yes. I filed numerous complaints since 2000 at, local, at the local level. It also went up to the state level. The, the Department of Justice came down in 2010. So this is not the first time I reported it. It's, it's been going on for many years, over 22 years. What did they find in 2010? In 2010, what they found was the Department of Justice, I learned you cannot trust them. This was in 2010 when Obama was president, 
and Eric Holder was the director of the Department of Justice. And you tell them where to look, and they look the opposite. They know where to look, knowing they're not going to find, because it was a low-income Hispanic community. And I was very precise. I mean, I told them, you don't have to ask them who they voted for, because it's against the law, unless you're doing a poll. I just asked them, when you go up to a house to, to verify a, a voter, ask them who the candidates were in this past election. Because if you vote, you know who the candidates are. And they wouldn't and do that. At least one of them is. Exactly, exactly. And, and they wouldn't. They, they just would not. And all they were doing is showing a piece of paper and saying, is this your signature? And most people, I mean, everybody was afraid. And the first thing I said was, yes, without, without even looking at the signature. And this is the feedback I got from the community. So unfortunately, the Department of Justice did not help at all. So fast forward, let's skip a little bit of this history and go to 2020. Okay. Um, first, what did you decide to do? Well, you know, me deciding to run as a write-in, you know, I, I knew I was going to win, but I wanted to see the opportunity of what the people were saying, you know, as of a new candidate running that wasn't part of the two Democratic uh, groups there. So I saw exactly what David told me. I saw exactly what the community knows. And we had a plan the day before, me and David, to set up some cameras because he told me, this is what you're going to see. They don't respect you. They don't know you. They just blatantly don't care. You know, they don't care about law enforcement. They don't care about getting in trouble because they're part of a small niche community, which there's city council members, mayors, their school board members, and influential people in our, in our community. So the day of, we about 4 o'clock in the morning, we started setting up cameras outside of the 75-foot range. Anything inside the 75-foot is illegal. We did outside. And then also counting on the camera that was built on the, on the wall, which is Cesar Cultural Center, was part of the city because there was a camera. up in front of what? Of the wall of the city building will showcase the parking lot and where the booths of the early, early people giving ballots out before they go in and vote. Um, so I sat in my car, uh, just one single car, tinted windows, watching Netflix. But at the same time, I had a video camera that picked up facial recognition, the new uh, S22. You know, we had the videos ready to go. I'm more a little techie guy. So when they started at 6 in the morning, around 7 o'clock, uh, that's when you started seeing a lot of movement, a lot of people showing up, a lot of uh, exchange of hands, a lot of movement of them walking them in when they really didn't need help to walk in and help them vote. And this lady, you know, Guillermo Fuentes, was going in and out like if it's her own house. You know, there you're allowed to help people out if they need help, but they have to ask you. Never what time in these videos that I have does the people ask her. They show up already knowing her, and they go in and cast ballots. Can you give me just a thumbnail sketch of who Fuentes is? Guillermo Fuentes is a lady that's been in the community for a long time. She's a leader in the community in helping out uh, building houses and nonprofits. But her, her real deal there is she used to be the ex-mayor. She's uh, planning and zoning. Uh, she's on the school board. Now, Guillermo Fuentes herself is a person that relies on the low-income communities. Why? Because that's her power base that she has. You know, if she goes to another community that's a different uh, culture, she's not known. She's not, she's not wanted. So she stays within her closed niche community because for them, the picture is she's a great woman, awesome woman, and she could be, but when you create this type of fraud for a long time, it basically shows that you are just using your constituents and the residents. 
we go a little bit further, there was a case that David will talk about, just the type of character this woman is. She's talking about, you know, it's a racial, that she's a Hispanic woman that's getting uh, charged or indicted. But in a case that David will talk about in a sec, is about the way she uh, did it to her own uh, Hispanic women. Are you alleging that she was working a table as a volunteer or a party official? Can you explain? What okay, this was she was an elected official in the school board. She was working the table as a volunteer, but as a mover and shaker. When I say mover and shaker, uh, it was her and another school board member that was across the way. Uh, both uh, had masks, and they were just collecting ballots or giving ballots, or most importantly, they were intimidating in a way that they tell the people how to vote before they go in. And were you the only one in the car when the operative video was taken? That is correct. Were you both setting up videos or just you? Just me. Okay. So I was the only one in the car. We also had another video section because in San Luis, Arizona, we have two polling places at the library as well. And we had game cameras over there as well. And I was going back and forth. You know, every 30 minutes I would switch off because they would see that. They were like, okay. And I see people leave with ballots. So I started going to the library. I also caught there more video, not even five minutes there, and I was counting video. So it only leaves up to, imagine if there was 10 of me recording at both these polling stations. How many ballots would we cast? Mm -hmm. But can you describe what we're seeing on that video? Yep. So you'll see that the characters of everyone there that was a volunteer were laid back, not worried about getting in trouble, not worried about law enforcement, not worried about elected officials. And a just lady walked up, had a ballot in her hand, Guillermo Fuentes received her ballot, opened it up, wrote on it, deciding who they're going to vote for, signed the name, and closed it. Now, in Arizona, there's, when you close the ballot, there's a, a little blurb on the right that says, were you helped out, and who helped you? She did not sign that. Also, she closed it, licked it with her own, uh, grabbed water, licked it with it, and closed the ballot. Then she went a little further to the right side, lift open a file, and inside the file you can see in the video about 12, 13 ballots. But she took about four ballots out and gave it to the girl. So it's illegal in Arizona when you give someone else ballot that's not a family direct member. So that girl walked inside, which is Alma Juarez, and hence that's why she was caught in the crime as well. So he knew what he was going to see because I explained it to him, and he just caught him. And it was just a matter of time. And you can see in the video, I mean, they're just so blatant. They just don't care. They're, I mean, broad daylight, and they're doing it. So you have this video in hand at some point. You think, we got it. How did you get someone in law enforcement to look at it, and there's their card, and build a case? And when was this, by the way? Was this the primary? This is the primary mm -hmm. in uh, 2020. So every video I had, I actually received that I recorded 23 videos, 23 different uh, crimes. I kept sending it throughout the day in the morning to David, and David uh, further sent it on to the county recorder. I was sending, I was sending uh, as soon as he received the first one, I got in touch with the county recorder, and I was sending every picture and video. To, so this was an all-day thing. It wasn't just one, one time. It was a, like, a, like a sports game. It was play-by-play. -play. And each video and recording uh, or picture that I was sending, I was giving a brief description of what was happening. So the county recorder, the following day, reported to the county sheriff. And what kind of response did you get? At first, we thought nothing was going to happen because it was crickets. It, it took a while. Then the county recording, uh, recorder, Robin Poquette at the time, asked me if I could get a hold of Mr. Snyder. 
and if he would uh, go down to the county building for you know interview, which he did. I, we were hoping for this. So it took about a week, and then after the week, the uh, sheriff's the office sent the investigation to the attorney general, and from that point, the state took over. And how did it end up with just so few ballots? You said you had 23 crimes. So They're picking and choosing what they wanted to start with. Uh, we see at the beginning from the development, we're like, okay, where's the rest? But what we're seeing their strategic style is getting the, one of the main movers and shakers and getting someone willing to roll over on that mover and shaker, plus the evidence, right? But what we're seeing is they're doing groups of two. Instead of getting like a, you know John Gotti with all them groups together, they're doing little by little, little by little, so that people are giving more information that could find other people that's involved without us knowing. It's, um, but I do believe, and what I've seen, especially when I check my numbers and all the races from the 2018, 16, 14, all the way to 2010, uh, the races for city, state officials, county recorders, all that definitely was changed in our area. When I say our area is San Luis, Arizona, uh, the district that formerly was number four, now it's 23, the congressional district as well, which is Grijalva, all that area, you see majority of the votes, but no one sees majority of these candidates ever in six or eight years when I'm canvassing these doors. No one even knows who the people are. No one even knows that they're still their, their elected officials. So I only come with the conclusion is, how are they voting? And if they're even voting, because I have a lot of people that said, we never voted. We are registered, but we don't vote. But yet, somehow they turned in their ballot. With you, what is your what are your thoughts about the 2020 national presidential race? <laughs> it's unbecoming because you look at the numbers, and we know how the politics are running uh, from years and years and up to the trend now. Now we say the basic of the Hispanic vote is the big. Well, it's it's amazing how the Florida Hispanic vote all Trump, and then we go to Arizona, which a lot of Latinos and might might not like the mean tweets from uh, President Trump. But they knew, they knew that he's the president that they wanted. A lot of them didn't vote for him. A lot of them didn't vote for Biden. A lot of them just didn't vote. But miraculously, somehow they voted in an election that they chose not to. So to me, the number, like David was saying, is no one thinks about that. One illegal casted vote is actually two votes. You know, in our area, just our little small area, neck of the woods in Yuma County, you know, we might have had, if not, 20% of that illegal voting would have been towards 2,000, towards his 10,000. That's just in the little community. You can only imagine Tucson, Pima, the Tohono tribe, which are these uh, Native American tribes that they are allowed to vote in the tribe, but also allowed to vote on the Arizona side. So that's really two votes now that they're allowed to vote. And none of that's talked about. But this is what I've seen in my past year and a half campaigning, that they literally tell me, we vote on the tribe and we vote on the other side in Arizona. Are you both Trump supporters? Yes. Yes. People might say you guys are just blinded by your support for Trump. You don't have any proof that anything happened in the general election that favored Trump over Biden. What would you say to that? Well, you know, it's a, it's a question that everyone's going to say. They're going to label you your MAGA, your ultras. I'm sorry to say, I'm Gary Garcia Snyder, Mexican-American, proud. My dad was in the Army, uncle's in the Navy. You know, I'm going for the best president that I know. And I knew Trump was the best president. Why? Because everyone looked up to him. They were scared of him in the, as a United States because we were strong, but the business economics was strong. You know, when you look at a, a president now that if you look at his past term, 
was just ridiculous as a vice president. And then you look at when he was in an office and here in the Congress room, it was like, wow, how is that possible? I can't believe in any way that anyone in the United States overvoted for Trump when he had rallies of 50, 60, 70,000 people. And Biden can only barely have five, two, three thousand people. Now, obviously, there's, there could be trends that people say, oh, we don't want to go out. We got stuff to do. Let's just vote Biden. I can see that, but not to a large scale to overtip uh, Trump in any way. Now, I am not deemed the, the MAGA person. No, you know, I believe in Trump because of what he's done and what strongholds he has. Now, I am a soft Republican because at the end of the day, I need to vouch for all our communities. And all our communities, you know, if they say, hey, they're, you asked, for example, one guy, I asked him, why are you mad at Trump? Oh, he's racist. Well, tell me, can you please tell me in depth, why is he racist? A lot of people don't know because what it is, the media only focuses on making Trump look bad. You have the Democrats and third parties that are knocking doors, signing people up, make him look like the worst person on earth to make sure that Biden not is the best, but least he's better in a certain way to an aspect of character. Now we've, we've created, you know, just two regular people, citizens willing to stick up against the fraud. We created an opportunity to show people that there is real opportunity of fraud. It's bipartisan. We don't focus only on Democrat, Republican, Independent, Libertarian. What we focus is on the system itself is broken and needs to be fixed. And this is how easy it's been, been done. It's time to open it up, dissect it, and fix it for now and the future vote. Uh, with all this investigation with Fuentes and so forth, that, like I said, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Two more women were indicted. One is a board member and a council member and a longtime operative and friend of, of Fuentes. And, and a, a long, another person that is really not known. She has a restaurant, the other person, and is also a co-defendant. And they're getting charged for the same thing because they were in on it with Fuentes. And that's part of the case. I would like to get more into detail, but I can't. But all I have to say is more people will be indicted and this will be proven. Now, a little bit further that David uh, didn't mention is ballot abuse is one of the felonies, but conspiracy. That is the big importance that uh, Gloria Torres is right. receiving. She's the board member of the Gadsden School District, which is the same board that Guillermo Fuentes is on, also the City Council of San Luis, Arizona. Um, these ladies that are being indicted are the pillars of the community. They've been there since they were young. They started in the agriculture uh, for however long that they've worked, but they gained that respect and that leadership through building houses, working on nonprofits, offering help from nonprofits, so the elderly that trusted in them don't they're not really political they just want to vote they ask them for what should we do and when the younger youth the educated ones that are more my age now or even younger they're not willing to give their ballot over like what their grandmas have done what their parents have done they're a lot tougher so right now if you're noting on the voting spectrum you know where the votes are coming from you know what precincts exactly pinpoint that the ballot harvesting is right. being created the only thing that I, I would like to uh, finish up, hopefully you can squeeze it in, because I think this is very, very, very important. Uh, now that Fuentes is in jail, before she went to jail, she came out with a video, and she, what she is saying is that she was uh, targeted because she's a Latino woman. 
and all this is going to do is intimidate more Latinos from voting. That's her response for going to jail. I find that very disrespectful because what she is saying is that it is acceptable for one Latino to commit a crime un against another Latino, and we have to be quiet. And that is wrong. That is how warlords work. So she is a bully, and she's misleading, and Latinos should not be silent when they're taken advantage of, or there's a crime committed against them when it's a Latino. I hate to tell you how all of this turned out since I interviewed with Gary Snyder and David Lara, the ex-mayor, Fuentes, who they caught on camera in voter fraud, was sentenced to one month in jail. And she has made public statements since then saying that she was only helping friends and that the attacks against her were political. And virtually all of the media reports done locally about this case, or even those that were picked up nationally, portrayed her as a sweet grandmother who was being persecuted because she's Hispanic or because she's a Democrat or for some other reason. A co-defendant in the case named Alma Juarez, she pleaded guilty to one count of ballot abuse. So again, seemingly no effort to go back and see how long this alleged ring had operated once the fraud was uncovered. No effort to broaden out wider and see how this could have impacted the races and who else could have been involved. On Sunday, May 14th on Full Measure, you will hear the entire story that will have some with Gary Snyder and David Lara, but also other cases of anomalies, irregularities, and fraud that I found from 2020, contrary to the broader media and political narratives. To find out where to watch my program, go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab. There is a list of stations and times. And if you happen to be listening to this podcast after that date, after the air date, never fear. You can go to fullmeasure.news and watch a replay anytime because now at fullmeasure.news, which is new and improved, our search bar works. You should be able to find the story if it's not on the homepage by searching something like voter fraud or election fraud. That's fullmeasure.news. And that reminds me, if you don't have a TV station near you, you can always watch live at fullmeasure.news at 9.30 Eastern Time on Sundays, along with the people who are watching it on TV. You can watch it online on your mobile device from just about anywhere. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the store tab and browse our great products. The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. <laughs>